to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. This is the first time I've had to do the second episode. You took care of it for us last week. So we're really just grateful to our sponsors and to our Patreon supporters and to every one of our listeners, because we can go to twice a week because of your support, because we have the listeners and we have the sponsors helping us pay for things like childcare so we can make more episodes. We're very excited about this. Tonight, we're going to talk about a crime that has been called a couple different names, Bear Brook murders, bodies in the barrel case. And it was kind of hard for me as I researched this to find where the start of this story should be. So we're just going to start it with the discovery of the crime. And in November of 1985, during fall hunting season, two hunters came on a private property that is adjacent to Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. One of the men saw a 55-gallon steel drum on its side, from which I understand was not the only drum on the property. It's unclear entirely what made him look at this particular barrel. There was one news account that said he saw a skeleton foot sticking out of the plastic that was in the barrel, but other accounts say he had to open the barrel first, that it was sealed, and that's when he saw the human remains. I don't know if we ever appreciate just how traumatic it can be to find a body like this. I've read that the hunter did not go back out in the woods for years afterwards. This location was not far off a logging path, and there was a shell of an old camp store nearby. The camp store had burned down a few years previously. The hunter alerted authorities who discovered that there were actually two bodies in this barrel. The remains had to be sent to Maine for analysis since New Hampshire didn't have the necessary facilities or have a medical examiner in the state that could do this. And it turned out that the remains were two people, not one. One was of a woman estimated to be 22 to 33 years of age, with investigators saying mid-20s is likely. The other was of a girl between 8 and 11 years of age, with investigators leaning towards the higher end of that range. There was very little to go on. Investigators interviewed people in the area. They interviewed the man who owned the property at the time, and they sifted through missing persons reports. And what is the normal procedure for this kind of case? They made sketches of what they possibly looked like when they were alive, and these were released to the media. They believed early on this was likely a mother-daughter pair, so they felt like they were onto something when they came across the missing persons reports for Grace and Gracie Rapp. Grace was 32 and Gracie was five years old when they disappeared in 1978. Grace's husband claimed she left a note saying she was leaving him and not to come after her, but this was hard to accept. Gracie wasn't their only child, and it's believed she wouldn't leave with one and not all of them. But their dental records were not a match. Grace's husband, Michael, would be named a suspect in the 1990s, even though their remains were never found. 
He was charged with murder, though not brought to trial because the police couldn't find him. He would later be a John Doe himself and was finally identified after he was found deceased in Arizona, living anonymously. Aside from Grace and Gracie, there wasn't any mother-daughter pairs that fit. So they branched out and looked at individuals. But they realised they may have simply not been reported missing, so they inquired in schools in the area and throughout New England, asking if there was a girl who came to class one day and then was abruptly removed the next, but no solid leads came in. The bodies were buried together in a steel casket to preserve them as best they could in the event they needed to be exhumed at a future date. This would end up being a very wise decision on their part. As happens with cold cases, investigators work on them as they can when they have time between more current cases. In May of 2000, an investigator went to the scene where the bodies were found to check on some measurements and scout the location for himself since he was new and he was new to the case. He wanted to see where everything was in relation to the old camp store, to the logging road, and to the road away from the property, as well as a trailer park that was very nearby. While at the site, he noticed one of these other barrels, and it was a hundred yards away from the initial barrel. In it, there were two additional bodies. Both of these were children determined to also be girls. One was between four and eight. The other was between one and three years old. Again, investigators have said that they lean towards the older range of these age ranges. Once again, there were no corresponding missing persons reports. All four bodies in the barrels showed that they were killed by blunt force trauma to the head, and there was partial dismemberment to some of the remains. Now, the first thing investigators had to do, they had to determine if these were from the same incident. Were all four killed and disposed of at the same time, or was this a possible dumping ground for a serial killer and that the bodies were left at separate times? Due to the state of the remains, it was determined that it was most likely all four were killed at the same time, possibly as early as 1977. Their bodies were left on the site between 1980 and 1984. As to why the second barrel wasn't found for 15 years, it's hard to say. It was probably a combination of factors. Possibly it wasn't found immediately because of the dense leaf coverage in November, though the area near that logging road, I mean, it had been last logged in the late 70s, so it wouldn't have been terribly overgrown at that point, but still in the woods in New Hampshire in the fall with all the leaves on the ground, it could have been masked. It possibly wasn't found at any other point because no one was looking for new evidence. There were several 55-gallon drums on the site, according to a 1997 tax assessment on the property. There was a lot of debris and trash on this property. It was kind of like a dumping site for random stuff. Maybe in the sea of trash and with the leaves, they simply overlooked it and they didn't think to check the rest of the barrels for bodies, which, of course, they did after they found these other two. 
Since the initial bodies were found in 1985, obviously forensic science would have moved forward light years. So when the second set of remains were found, the original ones were exhumed. Three breakthroughs came through genetic testings of the remains. We'll talk about the biggest one in a little bit because it took a few more years for that to happen. But early on, investigators ran DNA profiles of the victims and did isotope testing. Through DNA testing, they were able to determine that the woman, the older child and the youngest child were all related through mitochondrial DNA. And this is maternally inherited. And what this means is the woman could have been the mother of the girls, their maternal aunt, or even their sister, or maybe some combination of this. Like, for example, she could have been the sister of one and the mother of the other. The middle child, however, was not related to them. We've gone over isotope testing before. Without getting into the science of it again, isotope analysis looks at hair, teeth, and bones for indications of where a person is from and where they most recently lived. It was determined that the three related does all grew up in the same area, likely the northeast of the U.S. and likely close to the coast. The middle unrelated child grew up more inland, possibly in the northern Midwest of the United States. However, all of them spent the last several months together in the northeast of the U.S., very likely in New Hampshire, but this isn't so specific as to rule out other New England states or even southern Canada. 50 to 100 people were questioned after the discovery of the second barrel, including people at the nearby trailer park and again the property owner, who used to be the supervisor at a local mill that had shut down in the early 1980s. Much of the junk near the old camp store was from that mill. The information for these two additional victims was run through every database, but they were still unable to find any missing persons case that matched. This, plus the poor dental health displayed, led investigators to believe that they may have lived outside of society in some way. It's possible that the children never were in school or in daycare, or at least not regularly. They may have been transient, not putting down roots in any one town long enough to make friends who would miss them, and they may not have been in contact with any family. And of course, the property was searched more thoroughly this time, but no additional clues were found. We always have the serial killer angle, and certainly with four victims, we're looking at at least a mass murderer or a serial killer. We're also looking possibly at what's known as a family annihilator, someone in the family who took out everyone in the family. So looking at serial killers, the only known serial killer that seemed to match the profile as someone who targeted mothers, targeted daughters, and also buried his victims in barrels is John Edward Robinson. His crimes were discovered just months after the second barrel was found, so obviously this was a lead to follow up on. But there was no indication Robinson ever left the Midwest of the United States. He was living and being arrested of fraud-related crimes in the Kansas City area in the time frame we're looking at for these murders. If you're interested in hearing more about John Edward Robinson, 
between the time I wrote this episode and we're recording it, Generation Y released an episode on him. So I highly recommend you go listen to that. It'll be one of their most recent episodes. We're going to travel across the country to California now. Around New Year's of 2001, Yu Soon brought her new boyfriend to a New Year's party to meet her family. Her cousin took an immediate dislike to him, but Yu Soon had fallen in love. She was a chemist living in Richmond, California, when she met Lawrence Vanner after hiring to do roofing work to her house. In August of 2001, Yusun and Larry had a Star Trek-themed backyard wedding, though no marriage license was ever filed. But the unofficial marriage started having problems immediately. Yusun was hardworking. She came to the US as an immigrant from Korea. She earned her master's degree in chemistry and she worked as a chemist. She'd married Larry with the thoughts of starting a family, but she told her friends that he was not interested in that after the marriage. She also believed that he was lazy and not doing anything to find his own work. Sometime over the summer of 2002, Yu soon went missing. It appears it was probably May, but it was definitely by July when Larry started using her credit cards. She was reported missing by a friend when no one could get a straight answer out of Larry about Yusun's whereabouts. He said that she was out of state, but he would name different states when he was asked. When police went to make their inquiries, Larry said Yusun had moved to Oregon where she was seeking treatment for mental health issues. He even gave them the name and phone number of a doctor up there, and he allowed them to fingerprint him. They couldn't find a Lawrence Vanner anywhere in the databases. He didn't exist. So when they ran their prints, they matched him to a man named Curtis Mayo Kimball, who was wanted for a 1990 parole violation that was connected to a case involving the desertion of a young child who at the time was believed to be his daughter. He was arrested on that parole violation and the house was searched in November. In a dirt floor crawl space off the garage, authorities found Yunsun's body under a massive amount of cat litter. We're talking 250 pounds of cat litter. There was a hatchet and a reciprocating saw in the basement, and she had been partially dismembered. The cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and Larry Vanner was then charged as Curtis Kimball for her death. So what of this child desertion charge? Curtis, who was going by Gordon Jensen at the time, he arrived in California in 1986 with a girl of about five years old. They lived at an RV park. Right off, there were some concerns by others in the park. The little girl, Lisa, didn't have clothing that fit her properly, All of her clothes were obviously well used and too small for her. She was starved for attention and she often was hungry. Her father didn't have toys for her, but he did have this sob story. He would cry when he talked about how his wife died when Lisa was a baby, that she either died in a robbery or from cancer or maybe a car accident. The story changed depending on who he told his story to and that he was doing his best living as a single dad. A woman at the RV park, Catherine, often her grandson would come stay with her and Lisa started playing with him and calling Catherine grandma. 
She mentioned to Gordon that she would love a granddaughter like Lisa and her daughter and son-in-law were having trouble having a child. She was planting a seed because she knew Lisa was a sweet girl who wasn't being taken care of and Gordon kept crying about how hard it was to take care of her. He came back a few days later and asked if the daughter and son-in-law would be open in taking Lisa in. The plan was that they would do a three-week trial, like she was a puppy or something. After three weeks, if the family wanted to keep her, then they would proceed with the adoption process. They fell in love with her, but when they went back to him to get the paperwork moving, Gordon had disappeared. They weren't sure what to do, but they continued to care for Lisa until it became clear she had been sexually abused by the man they believed was her father. They called the police and the police confirmed through questioning her that she was abused and even more shocking that she had a brother and sisters who had died from eating quote unquote grass mushrooms while on a camping trip. A latent fingerprint was found on his trailer that matched him back again to Curtis Campbell. He had previously been arrested for drunk driving with Lisa in the car. It would be two years before he was seen again. He was driving a stolen car in California that he stole from someone he knew in Idaho and he again gave the alias but was eventually identified again as Curtis Campbell and arrested for child desertion. He pleaded guilty in a deal that dropped the charges of child molestation and prosecutors agreed that this was to spare Lisa from reliving the trauma in a trial where she would have to testify. At this point, she'd been placed in an adoptive home and she was recovering well from the abusive start to her life. He was sentenced to four years but released after 19 months and he took off immediately, violating his parole. He wouldn't surface again until 12 years later when the police knocked on his door in 2002 and asked where his wife Yusun was. So, are we all caught up? Curtis Mayo Kimball had abandoned a girl believed to be his daughter when he was using one name and was charged with murdering his wife using another name. And this was the beginning of the unravelling of the many aliases of Curtis Kimball. An investigator in Yunsoon's case, Roxanne Grunheide, realized that Yunsoon's murder was unlikely Curtis's first. It was too clean and too brutal to be an attack of an inexperienced killer. He lived in the house from May to November with her body just below him. She also suspected that Curtis Kimball was likely just another alias because even that name only seemed to go back so far in the records and databases. Curtis eventually pled no contest to second-degree murder in Yunsoon's case against the advice of his counsel, and he was sentenced to 15 to life. Even after he pled guilty in the murder case, investigators kept going and digging, figuring the answer to who Curtis was might lie with Lisa but they didn't believe Lisa was actually his daughter anymore. There was a concern that Lisa was actually a kidnapped child. As far as Curtis was concerned, when he was asked about Lisa, he claimed he didn't remember her. He died in prison in 2010, taking whatever he knew with him. The first step, though, in this was a paternity test that was done in 2003, proving that Curtis was not her father. An investigation was then launched into the abduction of the girl known as Lisa 
but it would take another decade for this to go anywhere. As an adult, in 2014, Lisa, who was at this point grown with a family of her own, decided to aid in the search for her roots. She submitted to multiple DNA ancestry sites, and using the help of a genetic genealogist, which we've seen in our episode, The Foundling, she was able to track her family back, and it tracked back to the East Coast. They found a maternal ancestor who had 18 children, so it was going to take some time to go through each and every one. And this is where the DNA kind of had to pause for a minute, and just old-fashioned genealogy work had to be done, though aided by computers, of course. Birth records, census records, marriage records, all of those were poured over. It took a lot of time and a lot of effort, and the convincing of a lot of these people to take DNA tests to build out Lisa's family tree. And she found out her family came from the New Hampshire area, and narrowing it down to this one state changed everything. Eventually, an obituary for Georgette Bowden was found. Georgette was a relative of Lisa somehow. The obituary listed a single child, Denise Bowden. In 2016, they determined that Denise was very likely Lisa's birth mother. A DNA test of Denise's father proved that he was Lisa's grandfather, but they couldn't test Denise because Denise had vanished with Lisa just months after her birth. In 1981, Denise met a man named Bob Evans in Manchester, New Hampshire. And spoiler alert, this is another of Curtis's aliases and the one he used most frequently in New Hampshire. Denise may already have been pregnant when she started dating Bob, as we know he isn't the father. But we don't know if he knew that. Denise, Bob and the baby they called Dawn at the time had Thanksgiving dinner in 1981 with Denise's family, when Dawn was only a few months old. On December 1st, so about a week later... The family dropped in on them for a visit and they were gone. Because of some financial issues they were having, the family thought they had just taken off to escape from those. In a relatively recent press conference, investigators would make comments about all the family dynamics being different, so for whatever reason, the family also didn't find it too alarming that Denise did not get back in touch with them. They also never reported her missing. She wasn't reported missing until Lisa was proven to be Denise's daughter and no one in California had seen Bob or Larry or Curtis or whatever he was calling himself. No one saw him with an adult woman. Manchester, where Denise is from, is only 15 miles from Allentown and the bodies in the barrels. This obviously did not escape notice. A woman went missing in the early 80s, just 15 miles from where a Jane Doe was found in the same age range. Not only that, but if you remember the property owner who owned that property and worked at the local mill, Bob Evans worked there too as an electrician and had done electrical work on that camp shop on the property. DNA is going to come back into play here. Tests prove that the woman in the barrel was not Denise. But in running the man known as Bob Evans against the DNA of the bodies, it was discovered that Bob was the father of the middle child who wasn't related to the others, and that Lisa was not related to any of the four. 
Bob killed his wife, Yoon Soon. He likely killed Denise. He almost surely killed all four of the does. So that's a body count of six. Because he was in an intimate relationship with two of the victims, both his wife and Denise, it's not hard to imagine he may have been in a relationship with the older victim from Bearbrook. Perhaps it was a blended family, he and his daughter, her and her two daughters. But this leaves another unknown. Who was that little girl's mother? Where is she? Is it possible she could be the seventh victim of Curtis Kimball, known now as Bob Evans? Now, it may not surprise you to learn that Bob Evans was another alias. It's as though he had materialised out of nowhere into Manchester, New Hampshire in the late 1970s. With no trial coming up because Evans was already dead, the priority was to identify the four Jane Doe's, getting more information on a missing woman and possibly identifying other victims. So investigators made the decision to hold a large press conference in January of 2017. And they laid out all the information they had that may lead to the identities of anyone involved, including Bob Evans. They put out the information he had slowly revealed about himself, though they weren't sure if all of it was true. At some point in 1986, he began writing an autobiography that police later found. In that autobiography, he claimed his Norwegian-American parents abused him and refused to allow him to attend school, that he had five older siblings, that he joined the military before moving to Canada, where he met his wife, Denise, that they had only one child, a daughter named Virginia, that Denise died in 1983. The ages of his various identities spanned from 1936 to 1952, though Based on his appearance at the time of his death, they estimated that he was born in the 1940s. They believed his story of the military being true and that he possibly was in the Navy. Based on his arrests over the years, they also knew he had an alcohol addiction. They put out every picture and mugshot that they could find of him from over the years. And it worked. Tips came in, and within eight months, authorities announced they were able to prove through DNA that Bob Evans was born Terry Peter Rasmussen. They matched him to one of his living children. Terry Rasmussen was born in Colorado on December 23rd, 1943, and moved to Arizona in 1958. He dropped out of school in his second year of high school and enlisted in the Navy when he turned 18, working mostly as an electrician. He left the Navy six years later and moved to Hawaii in 1967. His parents had relocated there and he was working in their store. In the summer of 1968, he married, and the next year they moved back to Arizona where he found work as an electrician. His general handyman skills and electrical work would be how he would later support himself when he lived transient under all of those various aliases. He and his wife would have four children together. They had twin daughters who were born in Arizona, and then his son and youngest daughter were born when they were living in California. In 1972, they separated, but then reconciled and moved back to Arizona. But in 1973, his wife, uh, she took the kids and she left. At the end of December 1974, around Christmas time, he suddenly showed up at the house where 
his wife and kids were living. He told them he had moved to Texas, and with him was a woman who they didn't know. They don't know the name of her, but they were under the impression that she was his girlfriend. This would be the last time they saw him. In 1978, he contacted a friend in Arizona, again saying he was working in Texas, and he was on record working for a company there, and he asked this friend for some money. The next time Terry Rasmussen appears, it's as Bob Evans working at the mill in New Hampshire. I feel like we've come full circle. We have some other clues that don't fit well into the narrative, but we need to go over them because they may be important in identifying everyone in Rasmussen's life. In January 1980, Rasmussen, as Bob Evans, received a certified letter at his home. It was signed for by a woman going by Elizabeth Evans. Rasmussen was then arrested three times that same year, all three times in Manchester, New Hampshire. The first two arrests were in February and May. One time was for passing bad checks and the other was from stealing electricity. In both of these arrests, he filled out the information that his spouse's name was Elizabeth. When he was arrested again in October for diverting electricity, he didn't list a spouse at all. Now, obviously, Elizabeth is of great interest to authorities. No one knows who she is, but in 1980, it's the time frame it's believed the murders occurred. In 1981, he was dating Denise. Elizabeth Evans may be the older Jane Doe, but without knowing who Elizabeth Evans was, we can't know. It's possible, like his first wife, that she left him and lived out the rest of her life happily. We know in 1981, Denise Bowden went missing and Bob Evans took off with her baby. He doesn't hit the radar again until he was hired under the name Curtis Kimball in 1984 in California. Curtis Kimball was a real man from Texas who Terry Rasmussen stole the identity of. It's unclear to me if he stole it when we knew he was in Texas under his real name or if he went back to Texas after leaving New Hampshire with the baby. We have a nearly three-year gap There are other pieces that may or may not fit. He told people he met his wife, Denise Laporte, both in Virginia and in Quebec. He wrote that she died in 1983 and they had a daughter named Virginia together. But no record of Denise Laporte or the marriage has been found. It's possible he's lightly shielding the true identity of Denise Bowden and her daughter as to not get caught. Or perhaps this daughter, Virginia, is the little girl he left in the barrel. And then there is a 1986 newspaper article about the abandonment and abuse of Lisa. This article says that he was married to a nurse named Donna and mentions that Lisa may have had a two- or three-year-old sister. Now, we know that Lisa also told authorities her siblings died from eating mushrooms. So I guess the question is here, did Lisa know the children found in the barrels? This case is an old one, but with the matching of Bob Evans to the bodies in the barrels and then the discovery of his true identity just last summer, as we're recording this, this case can hardly be considered cold. It's probably the hottest it's been since the bodies were found. We have a few unknowns. We don't know who the woman and the three children were. We don't know where Denise Bowden is. All we know is that she was not the older woman in the barrel. We don't know where the mother of Rasmussen's murdered child is or who she was. Then we have Elizabeth Evans, who shows up as just a name. 
We have Donna, the nurse, who shows up just in an old article. We have Denise Laporta, who Rasmussen claims he was married to. And then we have the unnamed girlfriend he showed up with when he last saw his four children and his ex-wife. Because he was transient, it's possible that the women and children in his life were as well. He didn't get caught until he murdered Yoon Soon, a woman who had roots in the area with family and friends who would miss her and come looking for her. And because there are gaps in the timeline of Terry Rasmussen, where he was, who he was with, and what he was doing, investigators across the country are looking for possible other victims. Because of the constantly changing story and the changing names, and because Rasmussen is now dead, I don't see how, unless people come forward that know these people, knew these people, I don't see how we're ever going to know what the identities of these four people are. I I just see the stories changing too much and different names are given out in so many different accounts. I don't, we don't know which part of the story is true and which is made up. I think we have some chance of the identity. There have been a lot more sketches and models of what they looked like, but we're talking late 70s, early 1980s. People have moved out of the area. People have moved into the area. If nobody missed them right when they went missing, who's even looking for them now? I hope that at some point the DNA is linked to some type of family and they can use their family tree genealogy magic and figure out who they are. But that still leaves us with, where's Denise Bowden? Who was Elizabeth Evans? Is Donna the nurse just someone who's off living happily? Is it someone Lisa gave the name of but was confused about? I mean, we don't know so much here with Terry Rasmussen dead and not willing to talk when he was alive, you know, we really just have to hope that the right clue comes in at the right time. We want to close with a description of the four Jane Doe's and some of the information we know about Terry Rasmussen while he was living this transient life. This case, we know who killed them. We have their DNA. I mean, someone has to remember something. Someone maybe in other areas outside New Hampshire knew him, knew them, and can identify them. The oldest victim was likely in her mid-20s, as young as 23, as old as 33. She was Caucasian, but may have had Native American heritage. She was 5'2 to 5'8, which I know does not narrow it down at all. Her hair was shoulder length and light brown with waves or curls. She had several dental fillings, but she also had three extracted teeth. The girl she was found with was between 5 and 11 years old, though as I said, they're putting all the children's ages towards the higher end of the range. She was related to the woman. Her hair was fine, and it was a dark blonde or light brown. She may have had two piercings in each ear, She may have been sick shortly before she went missing as there were signs of pneumonia in her left lung. As for the girls found in 2000, the younger one who was related to the other two was between one and three years old. She also had blonde or light brown hair that was fine in texture. Her hair was wavy and she had a noticeable gap between her front two teeth and an overbite. 
Now, the middle child, who was Terry Rasmussen's biological child, was between two and four with light brown hair that was slightly wavy. She had an overbite that may have been noticeable to others, but may not have been. She also may have been anemic. Here are some of the aliases Terry Rasmussen used. People could have known him by any of these names or a combination because sometimes he altered them slightly. He would change the middle name. He would swap the first name with the last name or use a nickname. So we're going to go through those because someone may recognize one of these names. He was known as Robert Evans, Curtis Mayo Kimball or Curtis Kimball. Gordon Jensen, Gerald or Jerry Mockerman, Lawrence or Larry Vanner, Jerry Gorman, Eulos Jensen, and Don Vannerson. He was known to live in motels and RV parks mostly, and his known vehicles were a red Dodge pickup truck with a light color camper, mid to late 60s model, a 1978 white Ford van, and also a VW van two-tone with the light on top and the bottom color being a blue or a green and if you know anything you can contact the new hampshire state police <laughs> 